The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. Obviously, if you just have a statue of some, you know, 200-year-old white guy and you know, like, two sentences about him and you see it from the window of the car, that's going to lead to a certain simplicity. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. As America re-examines its relationship with history, many of us are taking a new look at the people who have been held up as heroes from our past. In some cases, institutions have changed their names or disavowed their own founders. Statues of once heralded historic icons have been toppled. Today on the Story Gathering Podcast, a conversation with writer Sarah Val, the New York Times bestselling author of seven nonfiction books on American history and culture. She was the guest speaker for a Confluence conversation in May 2021. The program was a partnership between Confluence and Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. For more than 20 years, the Whitman College community has debated the value of a statue of the college's namesake, Marcus Whitman. The Washington legislature even voted to replace the statue of Whitman that represents the state and the U.S. Capitol with one honoring tribal fishing rights advocate Billy Frank Jr. Val said the debate over Whitman is emblematic of so many stories throughout the American West, where the myth is so different from the actual reality of the story. On the one hand, I have a certain amount of empathy for Mr. Whitman because a lot of these lies were told after he was dead, right? So he didn't really have much control over that. And um, in terms of him being a missionary, that used to be a little more in fashion, you know? And I've spent a lot of time studying missionaries and they're hard to love. I mean, I wrote one book that was about the American takeover of Hawaii, and that's the story of missionaries from New England. And it was the same group of missionaries who came and Christianized the Cherokee. They were the the ABCFM from Boston, and they came to the Sandwich Islands and, and um, you know, their whole, they were very idealistic, and the, their goal in life was to save people from the burning um, flames of hell. So their hearts in a way were in the right place. Obviously there's something really imperialistic and rude about showing up all over the world. And they did go all over the world um, to, you know, show up and tell people on the ground, here's where you're wrong, but they're not entirely evil influences. For one thing, the, the missionaries in Hawaii, the Hawaiian language, there was no written language and the missionaries invented a written language so they could, you know, publish a Hawaiian Bible. But in the process of that, they taught the first Hawaiian writer how to write. And he's the one who wrote down so many of the old, uh, the old stories and genealogies, like without that, who knows, could those, uh, could those have been lost? And when Hawaiians uh, teach immersion language, uh, which is happening in a lot of schools all over Hawaii now, 
they're using a lot of the text from that, that missionary era from those first writers uh, they taught to write. And then with the Cherokee, um, you know, the missionaries who came to the Cherokee nation back east and they went with the Cherokee on the Trail of Tears. But before that, there was this weird Georgia law where any non-Cherokee was supposed to get Georgia approval to live with the Cherokee. And this one missionary, Samuel Worcester, he wouldn't do that. And, it, and he, he wanted to be with the tribe and, um, and they wanted him there. And his lawsuit went to the Supreme Court and it became Worcester v. Georgia. And this became the law, even though Andrew Jackson didn't enforce this law, uh, the John Marshall Court ruled that the Cherokee were a sovereign nation and they could decide who lived in their, in the, in their nation. And it was, wasn't up to Georgia. And even though that particular tragedy is that that law wasn't enforced by the Andrew Jackson administration, that actual law is the basis of, of Indian law and tribal sovereignty for the rest of American history. And that was because one of these darn missionaries. And so uh, it, um, but then, you know, the missionaries' children and grandchildren are the ones who overthrew the Hawaiian queen and handed Hawaii over to the United States, which the native Hawaiians are still really excited about. So it, it is this very like murky uh, story, but uh, it's not just, it's not a completely linear narrative. As, as to your guy, um, I mean, that whole wasn't part, but wasn't, um, I'm not a Marcus Whitman expert, but wasn't it that one reason he was turned into a hero that he was supposed to have gone back, was it back to Washington to warn that the British were going to, you know, run Oregon territory and he rang the bell that, you know, saved the Northwest for America. Wasn't that the story that was exactly. told about him? That's a lie. That's exactly right. And that the Columbia River was supposed to be the, uh, the, the border between America and British uh, Columbia. So the state of Washington would have been in Canada if that had st uh, stood. But of course, all of that was made up and yeah. none of it was true. And Marcus Whitman played no role in that whatsoever. And then, I mean, the whole story of the massacre, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was about, there was a measles epidemic, right? And the the missionary settlement was blamed with infecting the natives with measles right that's exactly right it was the cayuse people and that marcus whitman was treating uh children he was a doctor and he was treating children who were uh from settlers and children who were also cayuse and the cayuse children didn't survive of course we know now because they were much more susceptible than measles of course and that is the story of the original inhabitants of the Americas. It's also the story of land-grant universities. It's also the story because, you know, the beauty of the land-grant university and caveat, uh, I don't, I'm sure, I don't know if some people have seen this. It's worth looking up. Uh, High Country News did this whole project on uh, land. They called them land-grab universities and how much the land-grant universities revolved around stolen native land that was used uh, to fund these universities. So it is very complicated. But in terms of measles, uh, during the depression in, in Montana, there was this kid 
in Miles City out in eastern Montana, and he lived on a chicken farm. And it was the Depression. He was graduating from high school, and he had a job lined up at the J.C. Penney's in Billings, and that was a good job in the Depression. But this kid's brother, his, this kid was named Maurice Hilleman, and his his older brother came home, and he was like, you know, Maurice, there's that college in Bozeman. Maybe you should go there. And he looked into it and they gave him a scholarship. And Maurice Hilleman went to Montana State University here in Bozeman and graduated and went on to the um, University of Chicago. And he created the measles vaccine, which if you heard Dr. Fauci over the last you know year or so talking about the possibility of a COVID vaccine, he always referred to that as the gold standard, the measles vaccine. And Maurice Hillman not only developed that vaccine, but also like, I think he developed eight of the 14 most common vaccines on earth. And he probably saved more lives in the 20th century than were lost in all the 20th century genocides. And so the whole story of the land grant university is that it was the first time in the history of the world that a country decided to um, educate the working class and um, people like Maurice, people like me, uh, just the riffraff of the earth, you know. Um, and I, I mean, I tell this story, one time my sister and I were in Nepal and we were being guided around by this guy named Sandesh who was taking us around to all the um, World Heritage sites in the Kathmandu Valley. and. You know, my sister and I, we're not totally ignorant of the spread of Buddhism in the, in the world and of um, Hindu iconography. But then he, he spent a few days talking to us and he, he finally, uh, toward the end of the trip, he was like, can I ask you something? I mean, after being with you two, it seems like you're peasants, but you know all this stuff. How's that possible? And we were like, have you heard of Abraham Lincoln? And he talked about, you know, here, and, and this guy was spending his whole paycheck to pay for his children's education, to send them to private schools because, you know, he had to do that to get them an education. And so that's, that's another, you know, part of the whole many moods of Lincoln where, you know, his story as a bumpkin himself was part of creating these schools where, you know, I mean, in the history of my family, there are really two public universities, one of them, Montana State University here, my sister and I went to that my nephew was going to, and back in Oklahoma, it's Northeastern State University, which started out as the Cherokee Female Seminary, where my great-grandmother went to school, and like, only one generation ago in our family, my mother's older brothers had to quit school in third grade to work the farm and to pick cotton. And one of my cousins is a bank vice president. And, you know, the line from third grade dropout to bank vice president goes through a public university. So I think your question had something to do with measles, but everything also, one thing I liked the other day, I was thinking about this too, being at the Missouri headwaters and seeing Lewis Rock. There's something about, you know, just very tall uh, altitude and having that perspective. 
And as a writer, you want that. But also, I think it comes from, there's something about Montana and our altitude. And I had been living in New York City for a really long time. And I knew I was moving back here when I was in the Brandywine Valley. I was researching the Battle of Brandywine during the Revolutionary War. And I made time to go to the Wyeth Museum, which has all the, you know, Andrew Wyeth and N.C. Wyeth, their, their artwork. And there was this N.C. Wyeth illustration, very kind of corny, really, but it's Sacagawea and Lewis and Clark, and they're standing on this bluff in a Missouri River landscape, and they're looking off into the distance. And I had been driving all over, you know, like hilly Pennsylvania, trying to figure out where this battle, where it happened. And I saw Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea standing on that bluff and was like, I need to go home, you know, I just need to be there. And there, there's something about, you know, especially that rock where he's just seeing this place for the first time, you know, Fitzgerald called it the fresh new breath, the fresh green breast of the new world. There's something about that, that's sort of how I see history too. You mentioned Lincoln, and um, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, remember this one line from Partly Cloudy Patriot, I think, where you mentioned that there's this myth about Lincoln, that he had this deep voice four score and seven years ago, but in fact, it was very high pitched. And in fact, um, Lincoln sounded much more like you uh, and, you know, and your voice is relevant here because, you know, you were in the Incredibles because of your voice in that, that sense. Is that... I mean, one thing that is true, we did have a pretty high squeaky voice. And I think like in movies, he, he does always have the stentorian voice, you know, he's Gregory Peck or something. But being saddled with a voice like this, it's not an invitation to respect, really, you know, and um, to sound so childlike. And I mean, I didn't choose this, but there is there's something about his words that were stentorian and there, that his words were worthy of respect. I think it's one reason I, I just more and more, I prefer print <laughs> because it's just, I just want it to be about the words themselves and, and not like this delivery system for them, you know? And the other thing, and it's kind of like the Confluence Project too, there's something about the printed page um, and there's something about your sites where there's just so much more creativity on the part of the reader or the viewer. You know, you really, like the reader and the viewer really complete those experiences. And I mean, sometimes people tell me they read my books and they can hear me talking because they know how I talk, but I would really prefer it if they hear themselves, you know, and I mean, when I went to that bird blind, I just felt like my full self there. I could think about William Clark. I could think about Sacagawea and, you know, her story being kidnapped by one tribe and sells her to this white guy. Um, the other thing about being Cherokee is the, you just think of everyone as people. You can't really you can't really indulge in the idea that one skin color is more virtuous than another. Um, I could be the naturalist part of myself. I could be the part of myself who went to art school. Um, 
like I just I love um, a little bit of a little bit of breathing room and uh, something a little open ended. I think print can be like that, and um, I think your sites are definitely like that. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Um, you know that we titled this program the you know our evolving relationship with history, and we've talked a lot about your relationship with it, with history, which is complicated. Um, do you think that our relationship with history is changing? We've been going through a lot of convulsions over the last year in particular, but the debate has been going on over monu monuments for many years. Do you see a change coming? Part of the last few years have been about, you know, recommitting to telling the story of white supremacy and how that relates to the history of the country. And that's very, important and worthwhile but i there's also been an overcorrection where you know there's segments that want that to be the entire history of the country who want to say that the revolutionary war was about preserving slavery which is not true or that that idea that the abolition of slavery and ending slavery and civil rights, that that was a completely black project when there, there were, there was a lot of, there wasn't enough, but there were partnerships. It was multiracial, the there were white abolitionists. There, you know, all of, if you've been to Gettysburg and you see those tombs, they're just tombs of bodies. That's what they're called, you know, it'll say, Massachusetts, 156 bodies. Or if you think about all the civil rights martyrs, some of them were white, Heather Heyer, our most recent one was white. There was partnership. And if you, and it's worth looking for those partnerships, I think it's worth looking at that. It's worth seeing that photo of Robert Kennedy and Dolores Huerta. Like that photo gives me hope. I think a little bit of hope can be helpful. It's not the whole story, not even most of the story, but um, we deserve a little bit of joy. Yeah. Do you think our debates about history have become too simplistic? Oh, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a way to, um, because Americans have a yeah, history. Read books. Read books. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, if you just have a statue of some you know, 200 year old white guy and you know like two sentences about him and you see it from the window of the car, that's going to lead to, you know, a certain simplicity. Books can help with that. So we have- Or talking to people. I mean, that's another thing you guys do, um, having people share their stories. Like one of my, you know, most tried and true methodologies as a writer, I don't see myself as an historian, I see myself more as a journalist, is um, my policy is always ask an old timer. Um, you know, like there are things you can learn from the people. Um, they just have a sense of place, they have a sense of their own history. They, you know, are frequently just proud of where they live and um, talking to those people um, it's, is really useful too. It's not all books. 
Um, we had one question about the pandemic. And of course, you mentioned the epidemiological history of America is as significant as the history of, uh, of, of slavery and other things, and yet it's not really taught. What can we learn from the pandemic about, uh, about our history? There's something about living through historic this historical event that's like all historical events where you don't know how it's going to turn out. A lot of people have good intentions, but they're doing the wrong thing. Um, and I think it also, I think maybe gives us a sense of what it's like, um, like we could not escape this particular history to be like trampled by history. That's what the last year has been like. Even if you, you know, even if you descend from European royalty, like the virus didn't care, you know, the prime minister of, of the United Kingdom got COVID. There was something um, about, like when I was younger, I think there was, uh, I did a, a documentary for This American Life once a long time ago where my sister and I, we drove the Trail of Tears. And in that piece, I think I was maybe 27 when I did that piece. And I talk about how I felt like I had escaped history compared to, well, compared to the people on the Trail of Tears, obviously I have, but I see now I have not escaped history. Like everything about my background, my ancestry, my class more than anything, um, you know, has affected my life. And, the, and there's something about this pandemic where everybody knows, you know, an historical event is not a monolithic event. There's a lot of chaos and uncertainty, and it doesn't always bring out the best in us. This is a, a little bit off uh, track, but we got two questions on, um, you know, this country has a, a long history of using um, racial uh, epitaphs in derogatory terms. And of course, mm -hmm. we've really come to terms with that a lot in the last 20 or 40 years or so. How do you address that as a writer and as a, as a historian, the language that is just not acceptable anymore? That's one area where I'm probably a writer first. I really like the recuperation of the word black as a writer because it's a much more powerful word than something unwieldy like African-American. The other problem with African-American is that all black people are not Americans. So I don't know if you've ever been around a Jamaican person who's called an African-American, but it's awkward. Um, and then some of, some of the way language is, I think everybody is well-meaning. That's what I definitely think. Um, I mean, our, our Senator from Montana, Mike Mansfield, who became the uh, Senate Majority Leader, he kind of, uh, he was Joe Biden's mentor when Biden just got to the Senate as a young guy. And Biden came into his office one day and he was complaining about some completely immoral Republican. And Mike Mansfield was like, you, you can't do that you can't question their motives. Uh, you have to try to see what their state saw in them. Uh, and so like that policy, it's really hard to live up to, but it's a good one to shoot for. Like sometimes you have to try to see like, what did someone see in this person? Why, why did someone vote for this person? Um, and in terms of like language, like take the words Native American. I don't use that term. I don't have a problem with it, but 
I mean, when I was a kid, my Cherokee grandfathers called themselves Indians. My One of my grandfathers was so old, he was born in Indian territory. I like that word, it's an iconic word. And I like also, it just makes Columbus sound stupid, you know? There's something about Native American, and I understand why people use it, but also as a like writer, it's very linguistically imprecise because a Native American should be a Native of America, right? So there's that, but also there was something about when that term took over, I understand wanting to reclaim a sense of dignity. And, you know, the word Indian is in a lot of ways a dumb word, but it's just the word of my family, you know? And also there's something about certain kind of virtue signaling among Americans of European descent where they use that word. I feel like they're saying, well, if I was alive 200 years ago, I definitely would have, you know, if I was alive in Georgia 200 years ago, I would not have taken your family's land. <laughs> it's like, probably, no. I, I tend to like an old fashioned word as long as it's not like super offensive. Um, so that's all a big mess. But I think social media, I think everyone, as long as, as long as you just remember generally people mean well, that can help a lot. But I think social media exacerbates the judgment and the, you know, just trying to ruin people's lives and careers over very minor, well-meaning transgressions. I don't like the language police, I guess. Yeah. I like the idea that, you know, we're not super offensive as a culture uh, automatically anymore. But I, I, I do kind of, I mean, my first decade in the 1970s, my linguistic influences were the King James Bible, Howard Cosell, Bugs Bunny, and Loretta Lynn, you know? So I'm, I'm drawn to maybe a, like folksier Brooklyn kind of way of talking, I guess. Yeah. I definitely don't like humorlessness though. But I feel like humor is the way for people to connect too. And you know, like when you're really friends with someone and they're different than you, you know you're real friends if you can razz each other about your backgrounds. So some of that, uh, some of that very formal uh, newfangled language is sad to me because it means we're strangers. Do you have thoughts on uh, land acknowledgements? This has become very big in public events and uh, public venues, uh, but we've also seen a evolution in the discussion about it and a lot of pushback in native communities. Like, well, if you're gonna acknowledge the land, why don't you just give it back? Um, what are your thoughts about it? I have mixed feelings. I mean, as a person who's kind of an entertainer, when an event start that, starts that way, it, brings me down like it brings me back to you know having the ancestry of genocide but I was doing um I was doing an event here at Montana State and you know one thing they do that I loved when they were my introduction at that event they don't do that as just 
person saying that they have a film of of um of all of these um members of tribes across montana talk like just saying their names and where they are and where they came from and who and what their people is and and i love that like you saw them you saw the place you you have this sense that it's not just a story of destruction like they're still here and you know some of them they just they're only on screen for a few seconds and, and you just want to like you know you just want to move wherever they are and get to know them so there's there's that i loved that i loved because you you see the people you hear their voices you see their faces you see where they are their landscape you meet them they're not just something that's gone. Sarah Val is a New York Times best-selling author. Her most recent book, Lafayette and the Somewhat United States, explores both the ideas and the battles of the American Revolution. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence, and that's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast. For more episodes, visit confluenceproject.org or wherever you get your podcasts.